as soon as a cell goes into isolation, it actually becomes a cancer cell. You put a nation in isolation, it, it moves into chaos. You put a single individual into isolation, it moves into chaos. That's why we put people in solitary confinement and everything else is a deep punishment. Connectivity is critical in our efforts to move towards society that recognizes one another and the value of each individual. We need learning systems, not education systems. Learning is a process of experiential development uh, within a, a complex ecosystem. And that experiential development is where you will find your truth. Welcome to the Restore to Explore podcast hosted by your soulmates from the Foot Collective. I'm Nick and at TFC we're on a mission to empower humans to restore their natural health and function from the ground up so they can explore movement and life with freedom and confidence. This week I have the honor of interviewing Zach Bush. Um, we kick off the conversation by talking about Zach's current work and the projects that he's currently working on. We speak a bit about regenerative agriculture and what insights it might offer with regards to regenerative health and what a regenerative health approach even looks like. We talk about the value of kids spending time in nature, the meaning of truth and community, nature as a decentralized health network, the importance of soil health, the flaws of centralized medicine and the opportunities that companies have in the years ahead to be part of the solution instead of the problem. We talk about the sad reality that doctors and farmers are struggling within a paradigm dominated by chemicals and the potential that can be unlocked for human healing if we reconnect with the natural world and restore biodiversity in our soil, in our ecosystems and in our communities with the ideas that we have passed around. Zach finishes by sharing his definition of health, which he was able to condense into three very powerful words, which I very much appreciated. I really enjoyed speaking with Zach. It was truly an honor speaking to this man and uh, having him donate his time to share his wisdom with our community at the Foot Collective. So I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation uh, and I will catch you later. All right. Hello, everyone. And thank you for joining us here on the Restore to Explore podcast. My name is Nick. And today it's my honor to be interviewing Zach Bush. So Zach, thank you for being here and uh, welcome. So glad to be with you and the Foot Collective here. Yeah, we're uh, very grateful for your time and your willingness to share your wisdom with our community. Um, and just for context, TFC or the Foot Collective is a global health community. We're focused on lower body health. And our purpose really is to help people restore a strong foundation for health starting at their feet. And um, we really try and do that by helping people reconnect with themselves, others, and the world around them. So before we get into any specific questions, I'd like to maybe open this conversation with you sharing uh, a little bit about the work you're doing today um, and, you know, really what excites you most about the future of health. Um, yeah, let's start there. Beautiful. Yeah, my last 15 years has been kind of a slow dive out of Western medicine. I was 15 years ago developing chemotherapy at the University of Virginia as my main, you know, occupational focus. And in that I made the discovery into nutrition as, as I was uncovering nutrients, specifically vitamin A compounds that were killing cancer. And so that was my kind of backdoor into what has become a real passion for the intersection between planetary health and human health and the intersection of food was the entry point there and re recognizing that the detriment and nutrient density and the addition of toxins in the form of herbicides and pesticides in our foods had really engineered the collapse of human health in the late 1990s as we went to widespread genetically modified crops 
we started being exposed to levels of herbicides not previously imagined. And so that was my journey into the, a scientific shift that led me to start my own laboratory and biotech company that works at the intersection of uh, the soil health, nutrition, access, and gut health and the microbiome. And so that was uh, a really exciting shift because it was starting to answer some deep questions as to you know, how had this chronic disease epidemic sprung almost worldwide simultaneously across so many countries in just one short decade between 1996 and 2006, we saw the explosion of mental health conditions, anxiety disorders, all the way to attention deficit and hyperactivity disorders in children, autism, uh, explosion of Parkinson's in males, Alzheimer's in women, and then everything in between, cancers uh, being the obvious one there, but also autoimmune diseases and conditions of the skin and neurologic systems that we had never seen before, really. So uh, the advent of, of science of the microbiome really started to give us a, a deep view into the reality that we had devastated human health through the disruption of soil microbiome, which led to a decrement than in gut microbiome and not just humans, but almost every animal on the, on the planet. And this is of course accelerated by about 10,000 fold, the rate of extinction on the planet from insects and pollinators all the way to, uh, our own species now on the brink. And so it's a really fascinating and somewhat horrifying journey in, in realizing just how deep we've dug ourselves into, uh, a, a pit of, uh, of kind of decline in vitality on the planet. And for that, we have a lot to look forward to, I think, as we start to reapply this science to a future in which we are reintegrated in nature, reintegrated in the microbiome itself. And so that's my current work for the last 15 years, leading a series of for-profit companies working in that space, including my biotech company. We've rolled out dietary supplement based on the microbial communication network that is produced by biodiverse communities of, of microbial life in soil systems and in gut systems. And that has been a real extraordinary look at the fact that humans actually cannot be at our full potential because we actually have never touched the full biodiversity and full capacity of nature itself. Uh, the last time this planet really was thriving at its full capacity or at least the, the maximum capacity it had exhibited in regards to soil microbial diversity and, and all this was about 55 million years ago. And that soil death that occurred that led to the great extinction event of the dinosaurs and everything else devastated the topsoil levels. But at that time, we had like 25 foot deep topsoil levels. And right now, sitting here in Colorado uh, in the U.S., I, I can find about three inches of topsoil. And so hmm. uh, the planet simply does not have that, the vigor and vitality at the soil level that it once had. It's has certainly been recovering that over time, over the last 50 million years, but has not gotten back to the vitality we once knew as a planet. And so as we extract those, those uh, communication networks from fossil soils, we get to see human biology when it touches that stuff to doing things that have never been imagined because human biology has been limited by the microbial diversity of the planet. And so as we start to look back in time, I think it gives us a hint as to how far forward we could leap if we put human ingenuity and human behavior in harmony with nature and become a co-creative force for that soil ecosystem to start to really return to a booming capacity. And it's been a joy to 
launched a nonprofit as well. We've got Project Biome, which is our global regenerative mission. Our first forward-facing project is Fi- Farmer's Footprint, which is now in the UK uh, following our Aust- Australia and US launches over the last five years. And that journey has really taken us into uh, a deep relationship with farmers worldwide, understanding the deep challenges of being a farmer in a legislative and economic environment that really forces the behavior of the, of the farmer often to move towards these chemical agricultural systems and, and genetically modified seeds and crops and the like. So uh, it's been a really interesting education from humans, uh, human health to soil health to macroeconomics, macropolitics, all of that intersects here at, at this section of, of human and planetary health here. Wow. Yeah, all the interdependencies where nothing can really be looked at in isolation and achieve true results. And, you know, I know through, um, you know, like you said, through Farmer's Footprint, you're going back to the soil, focusing on regenerative agriculture. And, um, you know, I guess one question I have is, what lessons can we learn from regenerative agriculture when it comes to regenerative health, which is the term I've heard you say before. Um, And, you know, furthermore, what does regenerative health actually mean to you? And, yeah, what lessons can we capture there? Because I think technology has led us down this almost path of complexity where more we have we have this seeming propensity to always need more and new and and fancier and more complex um, when sometimes actually reversion to the simple reversion to the natural is actually what we need. So, yeah, what can we learn from regenerative agriculture when it comes to our own health, even just as individuals and then collectively? And then what does regenerative health um, mean to you? Very good. Yeah, it's a bit of a dichotomy in nature here. You know, the the effort to be healthy is actually super simple, as you suggest. Uh, the, uh, I've kind of dialed the last 15 years of my integrative medicine clinic uh, that has you know based itself deeply in nutrition, but also is tapped into, you know, four and 7,000 year old technologies like Qigong, Tai Chi, uh, acupuncture, Chinese herbal medicine, all these things. And so in, in learning from that over the years, uh, I was you know prone to a complex methodology and, and we did ultimately find simpler and simpler, uh, you know, pathways into health. And so that 15 year journey took us to what I, we've now provided in just an eight week course online with with one-on-one coaching our group coaching we we do this journey of intrinsic health and it has just eight principles eight categories of lifestyle that feed back on human biology and so there's only really kind of this eight sectors that that will ultimately interface with the cellular environment to either induce health or uh, a disease uh, process there and so it's been that simple in the end taking hundreds of diseases, tens of thousands of drugs, and pointing it down to just eight simple lifestyle environmental factors that really will predict your your lifespan and your quality of life. On the flip side of that, though, is is just the sheer complexity of nature. Uh, my human body is 70 trillion human cells that are powered by 14 quadrillion mitochondria, which are tiny little bacterium that live inside of my cells. And those 14 quadrillion are in direct communication and necessary relationship to my gut microbiome, my skin microbiome, my sinuses, uh, and every other organ system now recognized to have its own kind of spectrum of, of biodiversity within it. Even my brain has a bio, biodiverse microecosystem of microbes and, and all this. And so uh, 
that system is so profoundly complex that the idea that I would take a drug historically and expect to impact that system positively now seems ludicrous to me. You know? Yeah, um, so reductionistic. Yeah, it's I, I really believed that that I was going to cure the world with my drugs back in the day, and now I just look at the the sheer narcissism in that really of like my mere human brain being able to you know calculate the complexity of interactions in the ecosystems around me and go put one drug that interacts with one membrane receptor on 70 trillion cells it's just it's it's like assuming that you could spit into the universe itself and, and change the trajectory of, of life within the cosmos and it's 2.5 trillion uh, galaxies out there it's it's just a ludicrous belief that that we're going to technologically improve these systems that have emerged over billions of years through iterative processes to perfect biologic diversity biologic capacity for resilience and regeneration and so that brings us to that question of what is regenerative health and from my perspective it's really bringing oneself in harmony with natural cycles within the body and the, the major natural cycles are carbon and water. And so the, the movement of carbon and water through cells is ultimately the way in which we liberate sunlight from our food. And when we liberate that light energy from the long chain carbons of glucose, fatty acids from our food system, uh, we are releasing a light energy in the form of an electromagnetic field uh, that then energizes the entire human and you know microbial system within us into this cooperative symphony. And so the carbon cycle, water cycle within our bodies is, is the most critical. To achieve that, we need a pristine environment for the microbial life within us. The microbiome within our cells, i.e. those mitochondria, are really the, the life force of a human being. They, they are non-human. They have their own genome. Their little bacteria, they reproduce inside our cells uh, when things are, are, are healthy or, or when demand for energy is high. They decrement quickly under antimicrobial pressure, and so the antibiotics that are, that are represented in our herbicides and pesticides are devastating on that energetic threshold. And so the current chemical environment that we live in is, is decimating our regenerative capacity. When we put these human cells, you know, back in touch with that microbial communication network that we're extracting from fossil soils, we see an acceleration of repair that's just bonkers to watch. You can take some of the most potent poisons on the earth. Most ubiquitous poison on the planet right now is glyphosate, which is the herbicide common in, in Roundup and, and nearly every other weed killer on the market. But it's now in about 80% of the air we breathe, 85% of the rainfall. It's, it's just saturated our entire water cycle as a water-soluble toxin, and that poison destroys so many aspects of human biology, including those mitochondria. But when we put those cells back in touch with the, the communication network of, of life on Earth, it's unbelievable how fast those cells repair. And then if you simultaneously support those cells with that communication network and then try to injure them, you can't. They get stronger with every single insult. And so it's a really cool concept that with enough communication, cells can never die. The body only gets stronger. And so it's a really beautiful pattern, I think, of truth that emanates almost fractally through nature is uninterrupted access to information leads to a completely regenerative state of being that is not only resilient, it is actually adaptive. And so it, it will find 
new avenues for health despite the most severe you know injuries that we can impose on that system so that's a little bit of a, a matrix there to, to hang your hat on yeah thank you for that and yeah it's it really almost like a, a base assumption there for really viewing health through this regenerative lens is the assumption that the human body has an innate healing capacity that is higher than what we've given it credit for especially in the traditional allopathic world of treating symptoms it's the assumption there is almost that the human body doesn't have the capacity to heal and therefore we must use our man-made human-made technologies to help it heal or to help it not break as much and i just think that's kind of like this very narrow-minded uh flawed assumption that um I think has just been sort of adopted, but we're slowly starting to unwind. I mean, obviously this has been something we've sort of hit control save on as a culture for a long time. Um, and one word that I heard recently that I heard someone unpack in a way I've never heard it was remember this whole notion that um, re bring being the prefix for again and member being, you know, becoming a member of something, this whole idea that to heal, all we have to do is remember into nature. And Dr. Jack Cruz, who I've spoken to before is really big into mitochondrial health, but he said something really profound one time when I was speaking to him. He said, nature is a decentralized health network and health comes from being part of that network and disease comes from disconnecting from that network. And just the notion that to heal, we just have to remember ourselves into the natural world. Um, and it seems like there's people starting to understand this truth. And even the word truth, like the Foot Collective, TFC stands for the Foot Collective, but it also stands for our values as a community, which are the things we try and align everything we do with and try and live our lives in alignment with, um, which are, and those values are truth, fun, and community. And so when it comes to truth, you know, in a world where it almost seems like in a world of information overload, it's becoming harder than ever to actually determine truth. Um, and so I guess the question I, I would love to hear your perspective on is how do you define truth uh, why is truth important as it relates to health? And um, yeah, how do you determine determine truth in your life? Like what are, you know, my firm belief is that you can't tell someone truth. You can only give them a framework for developing an understanding of truth and exploring truth in their own lives. So how do you define truth? How does it relate to health? And uh, how do you determine truth in your, in your own life? Yeah, great questions. Yeah, and I, I fully agree with Jack's comments there. I think that... You know, that decentralization is really key and it's something we need to learn in human behavior. It's what's driving us to extinction is humans continue to centralize power hmm. and productivity and all this rather than decentralize. And so it's a, a deep lesson that there's, you know, whole philosophies of natural law that I'm very passionate about, launched a nonprofit called Institute of Natural Law recently. And and that effort with natural law is to demonstrate that it is only through decentralization and you know, mutual empowerment of, of the constituents within a community that you actually reach a resilient system and a regenerative system. And so we need to really do a deep, you know, deconstruction on our current sociopolitical and socioeconomic systems to decentralize everything. And that includes, you know, perhaps most of all banking, <laughs> you know, we need to decentralize banking and, and our concept of, of, of monetary systems. Uh, we need to decentralize our uh, governmental controls uh, across the board uh, and and so that's an exciting kind of macro version of the micro there the the micro reality of, of all of this you know it, around you know decentralization and then this concept of truth is is that every single 
constituent within the community is determining its purpose with an understanding or an experience within the bigger ecosystem. And so it's only through seeing yourself in the context of others that you come to realize, you know, your role or your, your purpose within that community. Uh, as soon as a cell goes into isolation, it actually becomes a cancer cell. And I think that's the same for socioeconomic, sociopolitical systems. You put a nation in isolation, it, it moves into chaos. You put a single individual into isolation, it moves into chaos. That's why we put people in solitary confinement and everything else is a deep punishment. Uh, and so uh, this concept of connectivity is critical and, and it's you know paramount in our efforts to move towards a society that recognizes one another and the value of each individual in, in its its component in regards to to truth ultimately it has to be experiential for for it to to i think fit the bill and you can't teach truth and this is where we need to kind of decentralize our education systems into learning experiences Uh, we need learning systems not education systems Uh, learning is a process of experiential development uh, within a, a complex ecosystem and that experiential development is where you will find your truth, you know, and, and you'll triangulate, you know, patterns of recognition from the pattern on this pine cone on the ground here in front of me to, you know, the, the cosmos itself. You're going to find patterns that, that you will recognize at every single level. And, and in that, you'll start to find truth. Uh, we can see this done in, in science, you know, in, in an interesting fashion. And uh, the... Laws of thermodynamics are, are interesting kind of laws of physics that dictate the behavior of the universe. And those were come upon by thousands of scientists looking at complex systems and recognizing patterns that occurred at every single level of nature and then experiencing uh, the behavior of, of those natural systems throughout the, the matrix. So that's that's been a, a lot of that journey. Yeah, I think... I actually yeah. spend a lot of time working now in financial literacy because I sort of came to the conclusion that unless, you know, so far as we have manipulated um, money that is essentially stealing everyone's time, which is our most scarce resource, um, very few people are going to have the time to actually take care of themselves or, or learn to understand and explore what health even means to them. Um, and one thing that comes up is this this notion that centralized money becomes vulnerable to attack, to manipulation. And the notion that decentralizing things actually creates this this really fundamental level of anti-fragility. And like you said, even a cell that is connected enough almost becomes immune to toxins to a level that, you know, you can't even imagine. And I think that really just comes from building more channels, building a, a more complex woven web with the fabric of nature um, to allow this just level of this ability to buffer insult that has never you know been seen before never been experienced or that we've just come to not really understand because we haven't seen it right the the isolation of self or cells or community uh especially you know based on the three years that we've just gotten through i think has really left people in a way that they're um they're scared because they don't see any resilience in their bodies because they've broken all those connections and um i just think a lot of times people look for the complex things or they off they offload their discovery of truth to people who they're trusting know the truth, you know, whether that's science or health experts. Um, 
And the reality is, like you said, truth is sort of this process of exploration. And a big thing we try and do with the Foot Collective in community is share our, have open, good faith dialogue to share our truths, knowing that the collective intelligence that comes from everyone sharing their perspective together is going to be, is going to develop a much higher level of understanding uh, than any individual can create on their own. And so, you know, the third value that we have at TFC is community. Um, and I, I think that word gets mentioned a lot. Um, and I think people, even people that use it in dialogue can sometimes lack sort of this fundamental definition um, or deep understanding of community. And so I'd love to hear your perspective on, you know, how do you define community? How do you view community through the lens of health? And, you know, what words of wisdom do you have to people who are ready to foster a sense of community, um, but don't really know where to start or maybe what that means? I'd love to hear just your take on on community, its role that it plays, and how you define community. Yeah, that's a, a it's a very exciting question in the sense that we I think we need to redream community on the human level. Um, we have a lot to learn from nature here, and that nature continues to show us that her version of community is always extreme biodiversity. Uh, nature doesn't do monoculture at all, and humans continue to try to inflict monoculture on nature all the time whether it be the probiotic people are swallowing every day with, you know, millions of species, you know, actually billions of copies of, of the same species over and over again, or monocrop farming of soybean and wheat and corn, same three species of, of plants versus the same three species of bacteria in your gut. It's, we, we do this all the way from the micro to the macro on this planet, monoculture, monoculture. And unfortunately, we tend to develop community in the same way. And so we we find a, a like passion or a, a location that appeals to us and we go and collect there. And what you find by and large is an extraordinarily narrow spectrum of human you know, diversity in those spaces. And so while historically we've relied on kind of the, the tribal, you know, kind of connectivity of small groups and we survive for that, I don't think we've ever actually thrived, fully thrived as a society because we have not brought our capacity for creativity and, and biodiversification of community uh, into its fruition as we may have been able to. When we started to really travel broadly across the world and the world's gotten smaller and smaller with, with technological advancements, the one thing that we tended not to do was, was create biodiverse community. And so even in the cities that you think of having high diversity, whether it be New York City or Toronto or Melbourne or uh, London, and you say, oh, there's a lot of biodiversity there. What you find is those communities segment off very, very, you know, routinely into single neighborhoods that are, again, monoculture. And so we, we join by language and we join by, you know, food. And, and th those are tend to be the collection points that, that lead to this lack of biodiversity. And so I think there's an opportunity for us to really look beyond our current limitations as biodiverse communities and, and start to really imagine what would be the things that would bring us together in more diversity. What would be the value systems that we would apply that would encourage thousands of different you know ethnic backgrounds and languages to gather? What would be those shared value systems that would encourage that? And what we see in the regenerative world is that actually food and food resiliency can be that gathering point. We're, we're finding that people all over the world are, are recognizing that food scarcity, nutrient scarcity is 
becoming a global threat. And that is starting to bring together together community in a new way. We see groups, you know, gathering in, you know, Costa Rica or in, in parts of Africa or parts of Asia now uh, where they are recognizing the need for biodiversity of, of food production, which then leads to an attraction of individuals from around the planet. And you'll suddenly have 60 or 80 countries represented in 150 residences uh, that are clustering together around food sovereignty and, and food diversity. And so I'm intrigued that our regenerative agriculture, regenerative food movement could be the new value system that would allow us to truly biodiversify community in a new way and therefore find ourselves in a more resilient, adaptive, and intelligent system. That's what nature has shown us is that the more diverse you get into a single system, the more intelligence is expressed. And I think you need to look no further than American politics to see the opposite. And the more narrow you get in your your perspective, the more you kind of do fear mongering and, and you know, basically demonize everybody that isn't exactly like you, the more stupid the whole dialogue gets, the more, you know, you know paucity of intelligence is exhibited. And so it's been a dismal, you know, couple decades, I think, globally to see politics dive into this polarized, abusive, you know, fear mongering, shaming, guilt, you know, structures that we have going around the world now. It's it, it's indicative of that loss of biodiversity. It's indicative of a failure to understand what a healthy community would look like. And it's proven out on the other side of the spectrum, which is the blue zones. The blue zones around the planet are uh, universally you know, studied to figure out why do they live past 100 years of age so consistently in these communities because they are so geographically different. You can go to Icaria, Greece, a tiny little Grecian island in the middle of the Mediterranean, all the way to the high mountains of of some of the, these tiny villages of China and find these this incredible longevity. There's no similarity in their food. There's no similarity in their weather patterns. There's no so similar in the geologic uh, exposures they have. And yet they they show these you know outside the norm longevity factors that seem to defy genetics and everything else. The unifying thing that we find in those communities is biodiversity at the dinner table. There they, there's a com a community value for having new perspective at the table, and there's multi generational value systems where each table has three to five generations represented. You know, and so that. That's where we start to really fundamentally break down, I think, is when in the Western colonial mind, we centralized everything, including the nuclear family, as it's been termed, and in giving up the biodiversity of input to a child and making it responsible on a mother, a father, and the three siblings or whatever it is, you've destroyed the, the biodiversity of input on that family unit, and that family unit is going to increase its chaos. And so the nuclear fam family, I think, was really well-termed ultimately, and that it does go nuclear at some point. It, it will explode for for the lack of diversity of thought, lack of diversity of input into that that small matrix. And so we need to rethink our, our family systems. We need to rethink our, our value systems around family units and the rest, I think, if we're going to really reach a resilient definition of community. Yeah, really well said. And I think when we talk about community or we talk about diversity, we often talk about it in the small sliver uh, of our understanding, right? Like diversity and community might, I think a lot of people maybe would interpret that as there's different cultures, there's different skin colors, there's different hobbies, but that's a very human centric, narrow definition, right? There's no thought to, well, what is the divert? There might be a diversity of all those things, but if everyone that comes in essentially gets 
pushed towards this monocrop style of thinking that is common in that locale, then there actually isn't. It's kind of like a fake diversity, um, not to mention the diversity of ideas, the diversity uh, on deeper levels too. Like if you take even just the individual, what is the diversity within their cell ecology? What is the diversity within their gut biology? These things are invisible. So I think they're often not, you know, what's out of sight, out of mind. Um, and I think oftentimes a required ingredient that I think everyone sort of maybe forgets is this idea of acceptance and tolerance to other perspectives. You don't always have to agree with each other, but I think our we've gotten so low on this level of tolerance because we're exposed to such extreme perspectives um, that it's actually causing us to break all the channels that are maybe being sent out to us. Um, and it's like through being comfortable with our current perspective and unwilling and rigid um, and maybe intolerant to alternatives, we're essentially stopping all of these channels to connect with us, which actually is what creates a diverse, resilient community within ourselves, uh, within our human communities. And also that same human perspective is like, what about the plants and the animals and the insects and the, and the particles, the information packets that are around us at all times? I think people underestimate how much of that has been degraded over time because we just don't pay attention to it. Um, and you know, I think part of it, I think is just comes from the fact that why aren't kids brought into the forest to really appreciate the true biodiversity and all the invisible things under the soil? Um, and it's, it's really no wonder if we're not ever given an appreciation or an exposure to that, it's no wonder that it's not really anything we, we sort of think about. And, you know, if we go to education, you know, the state of how, you know, my take has always been that it's actually a really health is a giant problem, but it's a huge opportunity. And when you really break it down, it's like, people aren't taught to take care of themselves. People aren't taught about the interconnectedness of them and the, and the world around them. How do you think we move forward in a productive way to where we solve that so that instead of fighting the existing system, kind of just creating a new way where younger people can actually gain an appreciation for this and learn from, not learn about nature, but learn from nature by being given an appreciation for what to look for when they're there. Like, how do we, how do you, what excites you most about the potential future for education and how that impacts human health? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting, you know, opportunity of exposure for sure. You know, I think you know, exposing our children to nature without programming is important. And I watched my kiddos really thrive in that environment. They they homeschooled all the way through and and one of the main activities that they were expected to do kind of between the ages of five and ten was to to be out in nature for 30 minutes a day alone and so we uh, had access to you know, a few acres of woods and so we put them out there with a journal and they would have to find something that they would observe they would draw it they would speak to it in whatever uh, fashion they wanted they could write a little poem where they could describe it uh, physically or, or what what they felt like when they were next to that thing or whatever it was and when we look back on those journals it's it's pretty awesome it's pretty awesome what a six-year-old will will witness undirected in nature and and what they can draw from that and uh, i watched my kids just excel so fast through all of their their levels of education after that. Uh, they went into community college at age 14 after graduating from, from their high school studies and 
uh, in community college at 14, 15 years old, they were outperforming, you know, adults uh, that were 10, 20 years, their elders. Wow. And they were, you know, continued to do that all the way through to, to their adulthood. And, and watching those kids as adults now is I can see that childlike wonderment still in both of them. They they have an incredible capacity of observation. They have an incredible capacity to communicate. My my son teaches me every time I hang out with him, I, I learn something deep from him. He's an incredible mathematician, physicist, engineer. Um, and I'm I'm just jaw dropped by his capacity to explain complex systems, complex ideas uh, with such eloquence and in the same way my daughter has such extreme confidence on the other side in the performing arts space and her capacity to memorize entire scripts and all this is is just a fascinating you know you know skill set that i think springs out of ultimately diverse exposure and, and uh there there was no super intelligent education going on the homeschooling was much more like unschooling like there just was not a daily effort to like check all the boxes and do the things. And I think we have underestimated the human intelligence that comes from experiential learning uh, because we have for so long been doing this, this didactic education rather than learning. And education is ultimately programming the next generations with what we believe currently. Right. So now we just doomed that generation to, you know, a whole lifetime of trying to to maybe, you know, find the flaws in what they've been taught before they can become, you know, ingenious to invent the next iteration of, of humanity. And so uh, I see Western education as one of the, the biggest mistakes we've made as a society. And we've, and we've put it upon developing worlds in deep ways when, you know, you can go into rural Africa and you've got kids sitting around memorizing American education curriculum. It's just, there's absolutely no relevant application of that information in the communities that they live. And so you doom them to poverty because they are desperately hoping to be the 0.0001% of the kids that get out of the settlement to, to go to a big city and practice some Western economic value system or thought system. And so it's it's a real deep disservice. I think that we would watch, you know, resiliency and the elimination of poverty and hunger instantaneously if we eliminate the current education system and move to a nature-based experiential system for children worldwide. It would it would solve itself so fast. It would be just bonkers. You know, here we are, you know, wondering how we can solve 20 million people starving in the Horn of Africa. Well, the only reason they're starving there is because they've been put into an economic system that doesn't actually function there system has been taken away from them all of their traditional you know exposures that they would have gotten through experiential learning uh going out with with on a hunting gathering trip historically or something like that but even more recently sitting around the fire and singing your traditional songs and looking into the cosmos to get that deep intuition download from nature isn't allowed anymore they're instead they're put in front of a screen and they're staring into the blue light of their screen until 11 p.m. until they they pass out with exhaustion trying to memorize a bunch of crap that has absolutely nothing to do with reality so it's it's you know dismal in its in its current expression and almost instantly solved when we allow nature to become our our, our lesson again 
We wanted to take a quick break from the episode to let you know about our ultimate free foot health resource. If you're listening, you've probably already started the journey towards improving your foot and movement health, but if you're still wearing conventional shoes most of the time, that's anything cushioned, heeled, narrow or rigid, it's kind of like taking one step forward and two steps back. Knowing what shoe is right for you though can be super confusing. That's why we made the Guide to Foot Freedom. We've taken everything our team of foot health experts have learned over the years and synthesized it into one handy manual, packed with all you need to know about unleashing the natural power of your foundation. You'll learn how to understand your feet, the truth about modern footwear, the five Fs for finding natural footwear, plus a step-by-step guide with training videos to help you assess your foot function and improve it so you can safely and seamlessly transition into shoes that will finally give your feet freedom. The best part is, like I said, it's absolutely free. Just head to thefootcollective.com and click learn to find the free ebook, The Guide to Foot Freedom. You'll find the link in the show notes. Now back to the episode. Yeah, and nature was the first classroom, um, or at least should be. And this, even just the notion of free self-directed play, learning as play, learning as one, or play as one of the fundamental learning tools, play and story. Um, and just this notion of free play in nature being a waste of time because we've been so uh, programmed to think through the monocrop lens, right? Like what you're saying there is the solution to education is diversity um, and allowing kids to not be sort of force-fed diversity, but actually being able, having the freedom to experientially immerse themselves in a diverse environment to have, to come to insights that adults really don't have the, childlike capacity of wonder to actually even you know transmit and i think we we often get into this frame of thinking where the direction of knowledge transfers from adult to child um and and that almost like gets us stuck somewhere where we create this self-imposed box where we can't go beyond that because this is just the way things are um and we've lost the notion that uh the the information flow should actually be bi-directional right like kids we have so much to learn from kids at all ages Um, but in order for them to be able to learn the valuable things to teach us, they have to be able to be given permission and the freedom more importantly to just experience nature. I remember I heard, um, uh, an Indian yoga instructor say that really in India in the past, all things really, all kids really needed until they were about 12 was nutritious food, good sleep, and as much time in nature as possible. And it seems so interesting that we often say, well, there's so much money and technology and, and ingenuity needed to solve all these problems. When in reality, it's why don't we just erase all the stuff that we've imposed um, and allow us to go back to the fundamentals where it's like good sleep, good food, time in nature. Um, and I think, you know, just hearing you say things like that really gives me a lot more hope because it's not like we have all the all these self-imposed obstacles that we put in front of us actually aren't there. The solutions are incredibly simple. We just have to give ourselves the permission to actually believe that that's the truth. Um, and yeah, it creates this, you know, just like a fever is extremely unpleasant, but through fever, the body develops an adaptation that allows it to be stronger after. I think, you know, the past three years have been this very painful experience where humanity kind of went through a fever, right? Like we've hit, we've literally hit the limit of our, of, of our food systems. We've hit the limit of our social systems. We've, we've gone through this really hard period that may actually in hindsight be what we needed in order to actually open our minds and be like we need it's not oh we want to change things it's actually we need to change things um 
and we have to be creative and we have to bring back local communities to become more resilient on themselves because when you can't get fruits from mexico well guess what if you want fruits or you want fresh vegetables you actually have to dive back into the food intelligence of how do you create it yourself in local networks and you know in the travels that you've been going on are you seeing a reversion to people taking a more local mindset are you are you seeing this soil focus food focus um you know reintegration into biodiversity are you seeing this blossom on in in sort of the wake of this period of disconnection like are you uh is what you're seeing giving you hope uh and yeah i'm just curious to see you've seen so much in so many different places i'd love to just you know peer into your brain for a minute and see sort of the changes that you're seeing um and your thoughts on how we can accelerate and continue moving into that sort of the age of biodiversity the age of diverse thought the age of diverse food soil all of that yeah it's the i think the awareness and the creativity is exploding i think there was an equal and opposite reaction to the fear guilt shame paradigm of, of the pandemic and uh we really moved into you know an equal and opposite reality for a sector of the the population of the planet that said you know what we're going to believe in in ultimately joy and resilience and love for nature and ourselves rather than fear guilt and shame and uh it was a beautiful thing. It, it, it was disruptive. You know, I think it broke apart families. It broke apart relationships almost to the last one. Like it was, I think every relationship, regardless of, you know, the journey had to transform in that three year period, uh, into whatever it is today. Uh, and so that fever that you describe at that, that socioeconomic, sociopolitical level forced change all, all through the system. And for that, I think we did become, you know, uh, attuned to a deeper truth, to a deeper reality that we're all feeling beneath the surface now. And even if we don't know exactly how we're going to get there, we can feel this this new reality starting to emerge where we're going to let go of the broken systems of polarization and homogeny and centralization and all the 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 group think and and everything else, which is so different than biodiversity, right? And so um, we're we're moving towards a new world and that might re require an extinction, you know, yeah. um, an extinction, an extinction of, of, our, of our idea, <laughs> extinction of our behaviors, extinction of our pure guilt and shame. And so are we going to stay to play in our biology as humans? I, I think we're going to have to evolve. I think we're going to have to move out of the genetics of fear, guilt, and shame. And we're going to have to move into a genomic reality where trust in, in nature becomes inherent again. Uh, we, we've been through tens of thousands of years of broken trust with nature. We thought we were at war with her. We thought she was against us, not realizing she had actually created the possibility of us being here. This is how mammals came to be, was nature's effort towards that. Uh, nature's effort towards mammals, towards humans, is, is why we came to be. And so it's impossible that nature is against us. Right. Uh, this fear mongering about viruses or the fear mongering about carbon dioxide as the cause of you know climate change. Carbon dioxide and viruses are the, literally the fuel and the communication network of life. You know, and so we have demonized the very things by which we thrive. Right. And the longer we do that, the faster we will realize our our extinction and accelerate this sixth extinction of the planet here. Um, but I do see that that opposite and equal reaction happening across you know 
segments of communities all over the world and uh, from you know rural America in in the deep Midwest all the way to uh, deep pockets in, in in Indonesia, incredible desert environments out in, in Australia, uh, massive you know change happening in, in the matrix of communities throughout Africa right now. Uh, it's at the grassroots level, which is exciting. You know, governments are not changing fast enough to keep up with their their constituents. Uh, I think that the voters and and the people that are on the ground have already seen the the new direction, but the slowness of bureaucracy to, to change direction has necessitated this disconnect, this deeper disconnect, and more fear mongering from the governments than ever before. More efforts to control and eliminate civil liberties, all that's happening in almost every single country worldwide right now. It's, it's for their desperation. They're feeling the collapse. They're feeling the collapse of the American economy. They're feeling the collapse of, the, of consumerism as a driver for, for economic growth. They're feeling the collapse of health. They're feeling the collapse of productivity as health declines. And so governments are straining uh, through control rather than through the freedom of creativity. Uh, and for that, they're they're writing their own endpoint, and uh, I think we're going to see an end to the current American system in the next couple of years. Here, I think this next election cycle will will write the end of of our our fear mongering politics, and we're going to move to you know something new and different as we you know are eliminated from you know the the tip of the iceberg globally. We're going to be surpassed quickly in these next couple of years by other countries. And other, you know, multi-country uh, networks that are recognizing that in their biodiversity, they can they can overcome dependence on the U.S. dollar or whatever it is. And so we're about to see a big macroeconomic change. And if the U.S. is going to survive as as a consistent and, and positive contributor to a global community, we're going to have to change our identity politically which is to say that we're going to have to change our value systems and put them back in line with natural law and, and really become you know, what we intended to a couple hundred years ago. We, we set out to build a country on natural law. It says it in our Declaration of Independence. But unfortunately, we, we tagged on in the last second to get that thing signed, natural law and divine law, uh, which was, was just defined as outside of natural law. And it was our belief, belief in divine law, i.e., God speaking through royalty, that justified manifest destiny and uh, the discovery, you know, mandates where if you if you set foot on new quote unquote new land, you own it, and these really destructive ownership models that that came out of that European influence on the American model uh, destroyed our our country within just two hundred years, and so. Uh, we can move back to the origin story of, of a country that recognized that that European law was highly dysfunctional in its in its commitment to this divine law belief system and, and the hierarchical belief systems of royalty as as the harbinger of truth and all this and, and really come into an embodied state of of a republic in which natural law states that truth comes from every individual and it's in the, that biodiversity of truth being spoken through the biodiversity of that community that, that you find intelligence and that intelligence system will be the most creative force on the planet and therefore will be the dominant you know driver in economies and everything else as we as we once were perhaps and so um, there's there's a real need for reconciliation and healing of, of the, the the travesties and and deep deep you know abuses that that divine law 
met it out on this continent and abroad. We have destroyed, you know, 600 nations of indigenous cultures that lived here for, for 40,000 years before European arrival. And then as soon as we were done destroying those systems, we, we set out in a colonial methodology to destroy diversity of, of culture and thought and economics globally. And, and we've been, I, I'd argue, one of the most destructive forces in, in human history in regards to biodiversity. You know, we certainly advented you know, mass use of antibiotics, mass use of herbicides and pesticides. And so from, from politics down to the microbiome, the U.S. has, in its belief of its combat with nature, destroyed everything. And, and, and now, now we sit in this post-colonial moment asking, can we, can we re- find deep forgiveness, uh, which is going to be hard to do. Uh, I think it's going to take an apology. I think it's going to take a deep apology on behalf of colonial nations around the world, whether it be London, U.S., Australia, whatever. We, we need a deep apology uh, put out to the world of you know this colonial mind, this colonial fear-mongering, this colonial destruction has taken us to the brink. And we apologize for that deeply, for the harm of societies, for the genocides of nations, for the genocides of cultures, for the genocides of biodiversity on every level. Uh, we're going to have to issue a deep apology so that forgiveness can, can find a foothold and we can move into a system of natural law where we recognize the, the sovereignty and value of every single uh, element of biodiversity on the planet within the culture of humanity for sure, but also within the culture of, of the landscapes and ecosystems that we have emerged from. So it's a deep, deep wound that we have. Uh, it may not be a wound we recover from. It may, it may be our fatal wound uh, was the colonial extraction battle against nature mindset, uh, or it becomes our greatest moment. And, and that's kind of where we're at. So I remain hopeful despite the bleakness of, of, of the setting uh, that we now sit in because I, I see things heal faster than they injure. I get to see that in clinic. I get to see it in my basic science laboratory. A cell given access to information heals immediately. It took, you know, weeks, months, years for it to be damaged to the point that it is. And within a couple seconds of access to information, access to a connectivity to biodiversity around it, the healing is so instantaneous and complete. There is no sense of scar tissue left behind you. It, it's, wow. it is a complete regenerative event. And uh, we call that in medicine, we actually have a term for it, it's called spontaneous remission. <laughs> and spontaneous remission is a term we came up with because the word miracle written in medical charts seemed not to be appropriate. And so uh, it's this miraculous, instantaneous restoration of the original design, the original math, the original intent of life itself. And we are capable of that spontaneous remission. We're, we are capable of moving into a new health and healing event here as humans. And uh, it, it will just take a moment uh, of time. And to get there, we're going to have to realign value systems that begin at understanding the importance and value of biodiversity. Biodiversity at the dinner table, biodiversity on our dinner plate, biodiversity in our backyards, biodiversity in our farmland, biodiversity in our business structures, biodiversity and decentralization of economics, uh, the whole thing. And, and so it'll take some time, but we're going to be shocked at how fast things mend and, and how deep the healing can, can be and how rewarding it is to be in biodiverse community 
And that's been my highest joy in these last couple of years. I've absolutely traveled my tail off. I, I was home for 20 days last year. Wow. Because I've been on the road constantly, I get to, to see and feel and taste the world in a million different versions every week. And for that, I feel more hopeful and more joyful than I have in any other point in my life. And I also grieve deeply how few people are going to be able to get to that that realization in these next you know, short months that we need need this transformation to happen. Yeah, and you know, every time you say healing, it really sort of brings up this notion that it's an important distinction to separate healing and treating symptoms of disease. And you know, I remember you saying this, I think it was on the Ritual podcast as well. Uh, you, the quote is, as a medical doctor, I was ultimately trained to fear disease and to find a way to fix a problem or eliminate symptoms. Um, and, you know, I think this whole notion of centralized medicine, having this reductionist approach that kind of separates us from nature, which is the true healing path. Um, you know, how do you see it seems like there is going to need to be an apology on behalf of medicine for having misguided people, especially as the average person starts to develop their own truths uh, by connecting with other people. The more information channels they build, the more experiences they compare, the more this truth kind of gets carved out uh, with this deep confidence from experience, not just from being told what to think. Um, you know, is there what what role does med? Because I don't think medicine is going to be eliminated. Um, but what role, you know, if as a thought experiment, we are now in an age of decentralized biodiversity. Um, people are taking care of themselves. We're, we're, we're all taking care of our own individual part of regenerating the soils, uh, going more local with our food, doing everything that we we know now that you know now to be the truth. What role does medicine play in the future? Do you foresee that, you know, medicine having a role uh, beyond just acute care? Um, like, what is your hope if, if you are the person who is essentially setting the course for the next decade, um, from a high level, what course does medicine need to follow in order to get on the right side of, of the new world that we're entering into where medicine becomes additive and helpful to facilitate people's healing instead of bring, keeping us in the age of let's treat symptoms of disease because that's all we know to do and that's all we're trained to do. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's notable that, you know, suicide among doctors and physicians is higher than it's ever been and higher than almost any other, you know, category of, of industry or profession, uh, with the exception of farmers. And uh, doctors and farmers are trained by the same industry, chemical industry. And for that, I think our suicide rates are as high as they are because both the farmer and the physician set out every single day. And, and oftentimes we wake up at the same time. You know, you wake up at 4 a.m., I would wake up at or 4.30 in the morning routinely to get to the hospital, do my morning rounds before 6 a.m. and, you know, round with my team at 6. And the farmer was up at the same time to try to grow food for the planet. And uh, so the altruism is obvious. And yet the, the deliverables, you know, that we learn in a chemical education uh, take us so far away from our goal. And... It's living in the deep cognitive dissidence of 
I'm trying to do good. And yet as a farmer, I wake up every morning and have to put on a hazmat suit to mix five toxic chemicals together to spray onto the food that I'm growing. It's, and you watch the soil dying underneath your feet faster than any other generation in the history of your family. And you're losing the five generation family farm seemingly overnight as your soil systems die. And the cost of your inputs goes up so dramatically every year you're going bankrupt and your kids watched your suffering and, and all of that over the last 25 years. And so they left the farm and went and found other jobs that, that were more promising for, for a positive, hopeful, you know, good outcome on a daily kind of quality of life than they're witnessing in you as a farmer. And I would say the same damn thing for, for doctors. Like you wake up and you go to the hospital and try to figure out what you have to kill today, which whose cancer do I have to kill? Whose, whose infection do I have to kill? Whose, you know, cellulitis do I have to kill? Like it's somehow we both got put into this kill mentality in our education system. That is the antithesis of health and the antithesis of what we intended to do when we set out on these occupational journeys. So yes, we're going to have to apologize, but I think it's, it's, well, I, as a physician feel deep, you know, regrets and, and have, you know, given very tearful apologies to many of my patients over the years and recognizing that I was leading them down a path away from their own intuition, away from their own intrinsic health. Uh, and so now it's my joy to kind of, you know, lay out an opposite path of, of a journey into their intrinsic health again. But I'm watching it really, you know, take a toll on, on those that we would demonize. It's it's not the farmer's fault that we're growing chemical food. It's not the doctor's fault that we prescribe so many antibiotics. It's the fault of of the creativity of humanity itself and our own fear of of nature that drives the consumer behavior. Such that every consumer out there is demanding their their three or seven days of antibiotics so they feel better faster. Like right. you know, it's there's a laziness in in the consumer. There's a a I want the silver bullet you know, a thing that drives consumer behavior that then drives these industries into the levels of success that they have. And, and you don't create the biggest industry in the world by accident or by being clever. You know, right now, the U.S. alone is a $4 trillion chemical pharmaceutical industry, just healthcare. And then you add another $2 trillion onto the food ag chemical system, $6 trillion a year. That's the largest industry that's ever existed in, in U.S. history. Our military was always the most expensive thing historically, but we only spend you know $0.8 trillion on our military every year. Uh, we spend five times more on our, our health care than we do on our military. And for that, we know that the word health care is just a, a, a deep misnomer. It's, it's literally just disease management and... And for that, our productivity continues to dive as a nation. So um, we're dying in our wealth in the United States right now. Uh, when I work over in Africa, they are dumbfounded to hear stories of just how devastated our Midwest is. You can drive for hundreds of miles and see just ghost town after ghost town after ghost town. There is no People have had to leave because there is no economics left uh, through the entire core of our country. And so it's it's just a devastating reality that we are dying and are drugged into a belief that we're still doing well. Like the U.S. still thinks it's really thriving on so many levels, and that just dumbfounds me that we're 
we're so easily diluted to the crisis and we are truly the the frog in the boiling water here <laughs> and so um yeah my hope and the reason i'm spending so much time abroad these days is that these other economies can take over uh, as they decentralize and and reject the colonial mindset and start to embrace the indigenous value systems that we all have intrinsic within us we're all indigenous to planet earth uh, it's just that the vast majority of us have been programmed out of our indigenous wisdom our indigenous knowledge our indigenous connectivity to our nature and so uh, for this we have you know devastated something like 97 percent of indigenous cultures languages food systems and like that over the last 200 years uh, and yet those three percent of surviving indigenous peoples today manage 80 percent of the biodiversity left on the planet wow three percent of the population of the world is managing 80 percent of the biodiversity that is what it looks like when you stay connected to nature you become a steward of it rather than a destroyer of it you become a co-creator within it rather than an extractive force and so we need to quickly reconnect to the indigenous roots that every single one of us have we need to ask you know the apology we need to deliver the apology ask for forgiveness to nature itself and then of course to one another and then quickly move to a reconciled state of of biodiverse communities practicing decentralized systems of, of ingenuity creativity economics and the rest and and the whole system will change but to get there we're going to have to recognize that everybody's a stakeholder in this and i do value what you guys are doing there at, at the foot collective uh, it's indicative of this change where industry can become part of the solution not the problem and we see this at you know one of my favorite companies that would be in your category probably is, is the vivo barefoot uh, brand and, and company they they have been supporting a regenerative mindset through their industry and, and their you know revolution in food and footwear production but uh, it's been fascinating to get to know the family really well and and watch the thousands of ways in which they are influencing diverse systems of of ingenuity and, and through nonprofits and for-profit enterprises and all this and uh, they've become a generative force uh, within the london community there and beyond uh, and they doing so much beautiful work down in Africa now. Um, they have, you know, built out the, the, the very first indigenous footwear um, production system in the world uh, today. And, and these tribes that, you know, had long built the most resilient and, and foot-healthy sandals in the world are now producing those again uh, locally uh, with their local materials. Um, and so that's, that's a footwear company that's showing a pathway into how an industry or a company can become part of the solution and we need to be aware of that lest we go and judge and damn all of the companies in the world you know like yeah. the pharmaceutical world is for all of its damage done could become part of the the solution and and the food system as well nestle is the largest food company in the world probably has caused more humanitarian crisis than most nation states ever have um, through the destruction and, and taking away of indigenous lands globally for the value of growing more sugar for food products. Nestle can become part of the solution too. And and frankly, they're trying. Uh, the, the new CEO of Nestle over the last few years and, and their new board is recognizing that they will be out of business in the next 15 years if they don't radically pivot. And so they're making statements like 97% of the Nestle food portfolio is bad for your health. They That's... That's the CEO of Nestle saying that. Uh, they're saying that they want to have 
you know, 14 million tons of regenerative ingredient supply chain into their food uh, system by 2030. And so they're trying to become part of the solution. And in that attempt, they're realizing how complicated the system has become of and so reliant on artificial economies and artificial and abstract value systems. And they, they can't pivot it on their own. And so they are going to fail as a company unless the consumer becomes part of the solution as well. And so it's it's really going to take you know all hands on deck, all stakeholders at the table. We're going to have to stop demonizing one another, stop rejecting you know, one another as as the enemy. And we're going to have to come together at, for for a very you know cohesive and creative future. And the only way we're going to do that is through biodiversity, not monotony. And so this is where I get nervous about you know the direction of sociopolitics is oh we 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 need one world government we we need one world thought on health and so you see 300 new you know amendments being made at the UN to the global health uh, police basically that will be adopted in the next year and so we're going to we're about to empower the United Nations to have one philosophy on human health globally that's not biodiversity that's not that's not going to be a, a healthful outcome i guarantee it there's no way it can be no matter what they precept if you try to dictate from a central one government structure in the world what human health and and health policy is going to look like you're going to destroy everything not just human health you're going to destroy the planet so um that's we're on the bubble it's an interesting time to be alive i think it's a very valuable time to be alive um, we're blessed to be able to see it. We're blessed to see the chaos and the heartbreak. We're blessed to feel the joy and hope of a new future. Um, for 70,000 years, we've been living this decrement of, of biodiversity as humans have hunted into extinction everything in our environment. There's a new 70,000 years starting. There's a new epoch beginning here as we, as we near this extinction event. And we get to choose how we show up there. We get to choose how we stay in play. Um, so I'm I'm excited to see how we bring all the stakeholders to the table and uh, start to value the diversity of thought and the diversity of perspectives at that table rather than try to come up with a monotonous solution. Yeah, I think this new in this new epoch, uh, health and regenerating our world is good for business. And like you said, businesses, you know, while they may have made mistakes and been part of getting us to where we are now, it's like the opportunity is not only there to help make up for that and help be part of the solution, but it actually ends up being an existential requirement for companies to actually align with nature's abundance for the sake of their own abundance and for the sake of them being able to continue what they do. And I agree, a big shout out to Vivo Barefoot setting sort of like a new, I guess, template for what a company should be expected to, to do in terms of acknowledging all stakeholders, not just shareholders. Um, and I think at TFC, you know, people go barefoot for a variety of reasons. But quite literally, the the most immediate point of disconnection for a lot of people from the world around them is their shoes, right? When you put rubber, when you put um, rubber between you and the soil, you create a disconnection barrier. And I think it's sometimes interesting where you can come up with whatever reasons to go barefoot that you want. But fundamentally, uh, I think a really big reason is reconnection, reconnection to yourself by not manipulating your foot function with footwear and reconnection to the world, right? Like stepping into healthy soil with your bare feet um, is not something you can tell people 
you, you can't tell people about that experience. They need to actually feel it. And it can be this extremely spiritual, satisfying, like grounding experience beyond all the, the research and the science showing whatever. It's like, just try it. And I think footwear bringing people closer to that experience is part of the solution. At least it's part of the solution we at TFC want to work on. Um, and yeah, I think that was just brilliantly said because it takes the, I think it's sometimes easy to dwell in the negative of who is responsible for the problem that we're at when in reality, our energy is so precious and required right now to actually get us out of this, that putting that energy onto the solutions and the optimistic, cheerful approach instead of dwelling in the negative, I think is a really big thing that everyone individually maybe has to gain an awareness and check themselves on. Um, I want to be sensitive with your time. We've got like two minutes left and I really love asking this question um, to all the guests these days because I think it is actually a very challenging question to answer and that's, you know, the word health gets used quite a bit. It's in everyone's lexicon, but I, I personally feel like it's widely misunderstood. You know, to some people it's a look uh, or an aesthetic. Um, I would love to hear your definition of health in one or two sentences. So how do you, Zach Bush, at this current moment in time, define health in one to two sentences? Uh, and then we'll wrap it up. I'll try to get it down to three words for you. Beautiful. Connected, creative, and joyful. And that's, that's it. That's beautiful. <laughs> if, you, if you lose any of those three ingredients, you will lose health. And um, I managed to, to lose connection with those three things on a daily basis. And so I find myself in really rapid cycles of collapse and repair, <laughs> collapse and repair. Uh, I can do it psychologically, emotionally, physically, spiritually. Uh, I, I can become disconnected. I can become uh, hopeless to my capacity uh, to create. I can become depressed rather than joyful in an instant. And, and it can happen for any number of triggers that are deeply buried in, in my own wounded history. Uh, I am the amalgamation of 40 generations of trauma at the genetic level. And so I am the biologic expression of trauma. And uh, for that, I have an emotional matrix that's triggering. I have a physical matrix that's vulnerable. I have a spiritual matrix that is uh, is forgotten, perhaps. And, and so I, I have to bring it back to that simplicity of, okay, I need to reconnect. I need to create something today. And, and for me, that tends to be music is, is my greatest piece of it. Uh, cause I, I can be creative in my business development and all kinds of different things. Uh, but there's nothing as concrete as the vibration of, of sound coming out of your own voice box or coming out of an instrument in your lap or uh, coming from the, the massive, you know, harp on a piano. Uh, it's, the vibrational energy of music has been deep in the in the in the progress of humanity since our origin, and I think we are really deeply disconnected from our capacity to create music as a society today. Hmm. Uh, we tend to use our Spotify as as a, a justified version of you know connectivity to music, and it's digital, not analog, and it's you know fed to us through AI algorithms, and it's it's just not not what you think it is is you're stuck in a rut if you're if your concept of music is your spotify list sit down and just bang on a drum sit down and and you know play something uh shake a tambourine for goodness sakes like just something super simple but but start to engage back into music i think is 
an untold secret, you know, of health that we need to start to tap back into. Wonderful. And yeah, it's almost like every individual, uh, is the solution to the health problem is the solution to this inflection point we're in by just, and, and I think sometimes there's this idea of it's bad to be, to fall out of, to fall into disconnection or fall into hopelessness. But I think, you know, that's part of the process. And I think it's just having the awareness and maybe just creating enough space in our lives to be able to have the awareness to identify that reconnect, choose to come back into joy, choose to create, um, and yeah, Zach, it's been amazing having you be able to share your wisdom and your perspectives and your thoughts on all things related to health with our community. We're very grateful. Uh, you're a huge inspiration to me as a leader and, um, as a man and as someone who's actually doing the work on the ground, in the soil, in the dirt, um, to sort of upgrade the world where we have this giant opportunity, but it's up to us to actually, um, bring this opportunity in the right direction. And so before we sign off, if anyone wants to know more about your work or support what you're doing, uh, where can they find you on the internet? And, uh, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Yeah. And, uh, ZachBushMD.com is uh, my entry point into almost everything I do. A lot of ed free education there. There's 30 hours of content there. My global health education summits, which are either myself delivering hours of, of content around the virome and, you know, everything that you've heard through the pandemic and everything else, a different perspective on all of that, but also some of the deep rooted realities of our chronic disease epidemics and, and some of the root cause uh, analysis there. I uh, also have, uh, you know, dozens of hours of, of panels of experts coming from really diverse backgrounds, not just doctors, but, um, you know, mothers of autistic children are among the most extraordinary experts that I know in gut health and and have been able to bring them and their children onto the show uh, to, to showcase, you know, the opportunity to heal autism and, and what that looks like and uh, to meet these kids that have recovered from the neurologic uh, kind of disconnection of the severely affected autism to these connected realities that they now uh, are in the driver's seat of their futures. And these young, young men that are featured on that Global Health Education Summit give us a sense of what healing looks like at, the, at a deep level uh, because an autistic mind, no matter how functional or dysfunctional, cannot be programmed with the current value system of, of humanity. And for that, I think we need the autistic journey to take us into our new new expression of connectivity, creativity, and joy. And, and you'll see that in these two young men that are featured on the Global Health Education Summit there under the autism category there. Um, so dive deep there. Um, FarmersFootprint.us is is the org uh, on the nonprofit side. We would love your support and, and integration there. If, uh, if you're in the UK, we would love for you to engage with FarmersFootprint.org.uk. We're actively launching that program and, and really uh, in need of partnership uh, in, with companies, family offices, and the like to uh, start to build out the foundation of education, awareness, innovation, and all that in the space of of food systems. And so I uh, would love your support there. Farmersfootprint.org.au uh, is of the Australia component there. They're doing phenomenal work in, in highlighting uh, the mental health crisis of farmers uh, there in Australia uh, and beyond. So uh, lots of good stuff for you to tap into there. Uh, continue to follow along uh, through the Zach Bush MD platform on everything that I'm doing on the for-profit side as well. Uh, but you'll get a, get a deep dive there. Uh, there's a category there's a catalog of some of my, you know, recent, you know, uh, podcasts there. If you want thousands more hours of, of talking and, and long form communication around that, 
and then if you want to know more about the uh, fossil soil technology that is nature's giving us uh, through this kind of connectivity of the microbiome and human biology and invigorating these new levels of regeneration uh, intelligenceofnature.com is the website for that and and you got uh, almost 12 years of science there uh, from our biotech laboratory and and a lot to learn there so uh, we'd love to engage any way you all can as as we go into this global community and start to define our future amazing thank you for all the work you're doing to everyone listening thanks for being here check out what zach bush is doing uh and we'll see you next time ciao for now thanks for tuning in to the restore to explore podcast if you enjoyed the episode we'd really appreciate you leaving a review wherever you're listening that's the best way to support us and to help us reach more people If you're after more free TFC education or training, looking for any of our TFC tools, natural footwear discounts, or you want specialized guidance on your foot health journey from a trusted TFC health professional, head to thefootcollective.com. All of the important links are in the show notes of the episode.